You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Let's explore how the writer weaves the threads to tell a story. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with Peter Blauner, author of Picture in the Sand, and later the author of Hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara, Bonner Gork, joins us from Ireland. Peter Blauner is Edgar-winning New York Times bestselling author of eight other novels. He has also had a very successful television career, working in broadcast television. And the, it's if you're joining us for the first time, this podcast is recorded in the booth at the Sachin Public Library. The last time I spoke to Peter Blauner was in this library with Susan Isaacs and Reed Farrell Coleman. So once again, Mr. Blauner, nice to see you. Nice to be back at Sachem, even virtually. Yeah, that's very true. So you start this book off with a very interesting device in terms of the prologue. That device is the use of emails. Can you tell us about that and we, how you came up with that? It's actually the very last element that came into place in a project that I'd been working on 20 years. Um, the book mostly takes place in 1954, um, involving uh, the events around the filming of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments in Egypt, which it turned out uh, was shot partially during a revolution after the king had been deposed and at a time when the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to uh, turn uh, that country, Egypt, into a theocracy, kind of uh, offering a trailer into what would come in the 21st century and, and ultimately culminate in 9-11. Um, and I uh, spent a lot of time researching this book and, and um, exploring the characters and going to Egypt uh, six times and trying to recreate that era of both classic Hollywood cinema right. and also revolutionary era Egypt. But then the question remains, why should people today care about it? And for most of those 20 years, I had not answered that question to my satisfaction. And then I hit on the idea that this story should be told by one of its characters in a first-person voice, and just as importantly, I had to have a character who would be hearing that story, and had there had to be a reason why that character needed to hear that story. So the story is largely about a young Egyptian movie fan in 1954 who gets his dream job working for Cecil B. DeMille. This young man's name is Ali Hassan. He thinks this is his ticket to the American dream. He's going to Moved to America with Cecil B. DeMille. He's going to change his name to Al Harrison. He's going to get a house in Pasadena and drive up Plymouth and get the girl. Uh, none of it works out that way at all. But instead, he does achieve a version of his dream. However, now his grandson in the 21st century has become disillusioned with America. Right. And has run off to join an ISIS-like group that stands against everything the West is in favor of. 
Um, and the older man, his grandfather, knows how this movie can end. So he has an urgent reason to share his life story, a story that's remained secret up to this point. And so in contrast to the uh, classical medium of cinema uh, in the 20th century, we have the 21st century equivalent of the medium of email. And uh, um, there's supposed to be parallels and contrast between those two stories. So it's a, it's a modern day epistolary novel in that way. So here's when I sit down to read way my mind works for better or worse. I pull things out that I can relate to and pop out when I'm reading the book and I put it down to think about that. Two movies come to mind when I'm reading your book. One was Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. And the second one was called, I think it was called Relativity with Jim, uh, uh, Jim Caviezel and Dennis um, Quaid, where the father in the past Frequency cracked in me. The title was Frequency. The father in the oh, past okay. is talking to his son in the present. And I put these two movies together because, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time was Lawrence of Arabia for a lot of reasons. And I watched it many, many times. Then I started reading the books about that. But also sure. Frequency was a, re a really interesting Hollywood movie that makes you think about taking connections between the past and the present. And you raise this. You have a very broad canvas with the filming of the Ten Commandments, but you have a very personal story of then and now between a grandson and a grandparent. Well, yeah, because there's a difference between having an interesting subject, and it's very easy for a writer to fall in love with a big subject, whether it's New York in the 1970s or Egypt in the 1950s or uh, T. Lawrence or whatever it is, but then there has to be an emotional core to the story. There has to be a reason for people in the here and now to emotionally identify with the situation that the characters are in. And we all, for better or worse, have families. Right. Uh, and we all, for better or worse, reflect on uh, where our families have been and, and what that means for us in our lives now and in the future. So that's kind of the reason why I needed to put the story in the language of a grandfather-grandchild relationship. So there's an, also an aspect of family secrets, and I'm going to jump to you based on the person who creates the books that you write. Do you think about if there are any secrets in your own family, and you can relate to that when you think about their characters and how they deal with their own family secrets? Sure. I mean, uh, I think everybody uh, has that. There are stories that are told that you later find out aren't quite true or or never quite get completed uh, in some way. I mean, I, I only know bits and pieces of the story of how my uh, family got out of uh, czarist Russia in the early 20th century and uh, came to this country. And as a novelist, as a fiction writer, you have uh, the freedom to not only make up the rest, but also uh, to recast that story uh, in, in terms that are, you know, different from the specifics of your family's biography. And, that, and that's one of the wonderful things uh, about fiction, that it allows you to go to a different time and a different place to leave our world, but still have ways to feel connected to it emotionally. 
This is the podcast Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Peter Blount. The book is called Picture in the Sand. So what percentage is your imagination and what percentage is grounded in historical events and happenings? Because there is a lot of reality there, but the writer has the great gift of imagination. Well, I, I think I've said to you before, there comes a certain point where you realize Research is just a very sophisticated form of procrastination. Uh, I, mean, I, like <laughs> I mean, you can gather all this very interesting information, but at a certain point, you have to get into the chariot like the pharaoh and, and put on the headdress and take the whip in your hand and say, these horses are going in this direction, uh, not in that direction. So there, there is a lot of gathering of facts uh, that I did. I interviewed, I think it was 200, maybe 250 people uh, in writing this book. And just as a sidelight, I think it was Henry James said, you can't recreate the language and customs of another era more than 50 years after the fact. That's, I don't, that's debatable whether, uh, whether that's true or not. But because I've been working on this book for so long, I was able to talk to a lot of people who were actually there uh, on the set and who participated in the making of that film and who were involved with the Muslim Brotherhood back then and who were right. involved in the military government uh, that uh, took over from the king in uh, 1954. Two of the people who helped me the most, I'm glad to say, are still around. Um, and those are Cecil B. DeMille's grandchildren, yeah. um, Cecilia uh, and Joe. Um, who were present on the set in 1954. They actually are not that old now. Uh, Cecilia was 17 at the time, and uh, Joe was 11, and they were very, very helpful. Their memories were sharp, and their insights were uh, um, very um, precise. Um, and um, I'm glad to say that I, I mailed Cecilia uh, the book shortly after it was published, and I was a little apprehensive because I'm pretty tough on her grandfather in some ways in the book. And she noted that, but she also told me that she loved the book. And that was very meaningful uh, to me. So, I'm so gonna, okay, I'm going to go back to then and now, and I'll tell you why. I had a chance to do over the years some interviews with Lisa Scottolini, and her latest book is called Eternal. And she weaves in a relationship between three key characters in the book. And the reason why I say this, because February is Black History Month, do you see a connection between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Black Panthers? Both wanted to uplift their own people. They may have gone it differently, but I think somehow there is a connection there in my mind. I know how you feel about that. Well, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, especially back in the 1950s, um, represented a pretty broad spectrum of uh, political uh, opinion and different uh, kinds of people. I believe there were a million of them uh, back then. I don't. I don't know what the the number is now. And um, it, it could be within that group of a million, uh, there were segments that do uh, uh, share that aspiration uh, that the uh, Black Panthers have. There was also a much more militant, violent wing, and I guess you could argue that was also true of Black Panthers. Uh, as well, but but in different ways. What what I was more uh, thinking of, um, a what were um, the the aspect 
that most Egyptians do uh, relate to of, of, you know, aspiring to lift their people out of poverty, but also how that energy um, can go in a more violent, militant direction. I mean, the part of the history that the book reflects upon is that when the king was deposed, uh, there was military junta that took over, led by Gamal Abdel Nasser. Right. Muslim Brotherhood wanted the country uh, to become based in religious law. Nasser resisted that. Um, there was an assassination attempt on Nasser's life. Some people think it was staged. Some people think it was not. But the upshot is that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, members, uh, uh, many members of this militant wing were um, put in prison. Um, or they, incidentally, and this is also part of the book, ended up in uh, prison with uh, uh, members of an Israeli spiring who they they uh, formed a kind of uh, strange bond with. But others were also tortured, and as a result of that torture, they became very, very radicalized. And uh, in that radicalization, you can really draw a straight line to what became al-Qaeda and what happened uh, on September 11th, 2001, in our city. Uh, and as a, as a, a, a longtime New Yorker and, and someone who's always lived in the tri-state area, that was sort of my entry point for the whole story. So I'm reading about the prison there in Egypt and about being tortured and interrogated. And you know what came to mind? A boot grave. That oh. where that I read these scenes and I and they're they're horrific. Yeah. But though you created that. I'm sure that happened, but it yeah, really no, didn't. No, I didn't. I don't make up any stuff like that just for the sake of being well, sadistic. That's it did, a, it did happen in Boo Grave, and, and, yeah. we're, and we're still wrestling with the consequences of that also. So I'm also tying those two things in, the renderings in your book, but also what happens in terms of American history and torture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, again, I, I talked to people who had actually been in those prisons, who had gone through those experiences, Um the, the Israeli uh, um, members of the Israeli spy rings uh, uh, wrote uh, about their experiences in those prisons and, and about the um, pivotal moment, which is in the book, which I did not make up, that there was a moment where uh, the uh, Egyptian guards uh, uh, were demanding a confession from uh, one, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, when he wouldn't confess and he wouldn't knuckle under to the beating that he was being given, they said, we're going to bring in one of the Israeli spies and we're going to have him beat you. Right. And the Israeli spies said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And they said, well, if you don't do it, we're going to beat you. He said, okay, <laughs> bring it on. And they actually did it. They actually did it. And the result was not that they broke the Israeli guy down. It was, in fact, they broke down the barrier between these two groups who were natural enemies. And that that was such a powerful moment that I thought, well, I've got to write about that as well. That was a very powerful moment. Once again, I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Peter Blount. The book is called Picture in the Sand. It's another very powerful moment. The book is about the filming of the Ten Commandments for the second time by DeMille, by the way. The second yeah. time he filled it. There is something that you write about between two characters – and it's called the 11th commandment. Do you know yes. what I'm referring to about uh, Ali and going and going back when he could have escaped? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back yeah. to this guy who yeah. 
essentially he was very very comfortable with in doing the course of the book, and right. that becomes the 11th commandment. What am I referring to? I believe I'm not. I don't have the book in front of me, but he, it's basically a moment between uh, an Egyptian Muslim and and um, an Eastern European Jew uh, who uh, have been. Not to give the plot of the book away, but they they are pretty antagonistic uh, for most of the book, and they they get to know each other during the filming of the Ten Commandments, and, and the Eleventh Commandment refers to a moment in the the narrative where that relationship reverses and becomes the opposite of what it's been up until that moment, and and um, yeah, I, I I just felt that you, you needed to have some kind of emotional reproachment uh, there and that uh, uh, you needed, it's a little bit politically risky because their grievance is understandable on both sides. But uh, again, in the realm of fiction, it can go someplace that you can't in journalism. And, and uh, that's, that's the place I've, I chose to go here. So you said you spoke to the Mills' grandson. You gave him a heads up that you're going to be very tough. Yeah. Granddaughter. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for the correction. Both, you, but no, both of them, both the grandson okay. and the granddaughter. Excellent. That you were going to be tough on him. Yeah. Now, my take of the book is, and I'm going to combine two characters, two very important characters, the filmmaker DeMille and Nasser. Yeah. Both very manipulative, trying to, you know, have a control of their environments. When yes. you write about the director on the set, and exactly what he wants, he's a dictator. Yeah. And you also write about Nasser, who was a dictator. So I'm seeing some commonalities yeah. between both of your characters. Well, that was part of the appeal of the book to begin with. Um, the moment when the book was born was uh, March 27th, 2002, at approximately 8.09 p.m. And uh, I know it because that was the first night of uh, the first Passover after 9-11. Right. And uh, the Ten Commandments is shown on ABC or was shown on ABC every year uh, uh, over that Easter Passover weekend. Uh, usually I only caught the tail end of the movie with the parting of the Red Sea sequence. But that year, because everybody was sort of in an unsettled mood, it took a while to sit down to dinner and I watched the movie for the first time from the very beginning. And when the credits rolled, I saw Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, Ann Baxter, Yvonne DiCarlo, who of course we all remember play, playing Lily Munster. Right. And then it said as the Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian Cavalry Corps. And I know just enough about Middle Eastern history, which is not much, I don't know much, but I know just enough that the Suez crisis was 1956. I knew the revolution where the king was deposed was 1952. I guess the movie had been filmed around 1954 because it came out in 56 and it's a big production. And I realized Cecil B. DeMille must have gone to Egypt and made a deal with Gamal Abdel Nasser, the military dictator. And these two giants in their own world had somehow come together. And that proved through my research to be absolutely true. Uh, they did know each other. They did make a deal. Their first meeting is very much as I depict it in the book, this sort of 
um, tense yet comic moment where um, it be- seems like Nasser is going to turn them away and 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 turn down the deal that uh, the king and his predecessor had made. But in turn, in fact, it turns out he was a big fan of DeMille's movie, The Crusades, of all things, and and agrees to go ahead and allow the Ten Commandments to be filmed there. And in exchange, DeMille agrees to make a documentary that uh, will make Egypt look like a new bastion of liberty in the Middle East. Um, and I couldn't have made any of that up on my own. I wouldn't have had the nerve. But it gave me a great platform to jump off in terms of creating a fictional story. So I'm not going to be flippant. But once again, another movie reference, Driving Miss Daisy. Oh. You have Ali driving early on, picking up DeMille and some of the other people in the entourage from the airport, I believe, and then driving them towards Cairo. It was a Ky- right. Cairo. And yeah. something dramatically happens, becomes very important undercurrent and undertow in the whole story. That's why my reference in a very flippant manner is driving yeah. Miss Daisy. So what happens to set everything off in terms of infecting the lives of a lot of people then and also later on? Well, again, uh, I'm, I'm basing this on something that really happened that most people uh, wouldn't know about, which is that there was uh, an incident in 1954 where uh, in a, a car driven uh, carrying Americans was uh, surrounded uh, by a mob. Um, there was no way to escape as they tried to turn the car over in their excitement. Um, the driver stepped on the accelerator, and according to one of the witnesses I spoke to, someone probably died at, at that moment. Uh, and and that becomes sort of um, the, the inciting incident uh, for uh, the entire book. Um, interestingly, when I went and did uh, the research during the Arab Spring 2011, uh, something similar happened to me in Alexandria, a car I was in was surrounded and uh, the crowd kind of rocked it back and forth. And uh, and then they decided I wasn't worth overthrowing. Uh, (laughs) It was just a writer, not not anybody really important. Uh, but, But it was enough that I had a visceral sense of what that would feel like at that moment. And I tried to um, capture that uh, in writing the scene. So I, I try, I read the book. We've done multiple books, interviews over the years. And that's why I always love having you because every book that we've done, I really enjoy. Sunrise Highway was drift, by the way, the previous book, because a lot of it takes place on Long Island. So in terms of the books that you write, was this the most challenging of all the previous novels? Well, yeah. I mean, yes, uh, very much so. I mean, none of them have come easily. I always try and set myself a serious uh, challenge. The, fir- the first book I wrote, Slow Motion Riot, it's about a probation officer, and so I was a, a volunteer probation officer for six months, so I could write about that realistically. I had a book called The Intruder. Um, some of that's about a homeless guy who lives in the tunnels underneath Riverside Park. So I went and you know spent some time in the tunnels underneath that park. But in this case, I wanted to write something that was completely different from anything I've ever written before. I just really want to interrupt you for one minute because we've talked about this, and I think we both know him because the, one of the guys – lived in the tunnels and wrote about that was Lee Stringer. Do you remember Lee? Did you have interactions yeah, no, with Lee, him? Lee is, Lee is still a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. 
I just want to yeah. put you that in because he was a very special guy, and, and I believe you were, you knew him too. But I interject, yeah. I interrupt him, and go on. Yeah, he's a great guy, and Lee is a, a terrific writer as well. He has a wonderful book called Grand Central Winter. But um, the, in, in this case, I wanted to. Uh, follow more in the footsteps of people like Leon Uris um, and uh, Erwin yeah, uh, Shaw or uh, um, um, James Michener. Um, yeah, this book isn't as long as uh, Michener's uh, books could be, but, but uh, more following in the tradition of, of these big narratives that make you feel like you're in a, immersed in a different time and a different place yet it has some connection to the world that we're living in now. So changing genres, really, because this is much more of an historical novel than a uh, contemporary urban crime novel, which is what I usually write. And it, it really, um, that involved a lot of transport uh, for me, and that involved a lot of rewriting my personal rules in order to make that work. So a little bit of trivia based on my research when people watch this movie, they will know Chuck Heston. Yeah. Moses. Yeah. But I may be wrong. He was not the first choice. A lot of us of a certain age remember Hopalong Cassidy. Oh, right, right, right. And Hopalong Cassidy was William Boyd. Was Hopalong right. Cassidy slash William Boyd considered for the role before Chuck Heston? Not, not, not only was he considered for the role, there are actually photographs of him visiting the set in Egypt. Um, and uh, uh, there are pictures of him and Heston together. And um, there is acknowledgement that he was there in case DeMille didn't like what Heston was doing with the role. Um, and that um, um, Boyd would step in instead, even though Boyd's considerably older than Heston. And, and it would have been a little odd uh, to have someone who was so associated with a cowboy role uh, step in to play Moses as opposed to Heston, who wasn't really that well known at the time of the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and that's one of those moments that uh, made the book challenging to write because it, it's irresistible to write that and to have that in the book, but it really doesn't fit with the flow of the narrative. At all, so that's a scene that I had to cut, uh, actually, in the book because you just got to kill your darlings sometimes. All right, it's very flow. So I'm not capable of original thought. So I came across this, and I wanted to share it for you, Peter, and also for the listeners. And this is how it goes. Hopefully, I'll read it properly. You work in solitude, and yes, that can be lonely. And if you're lucky to go on a book tour and meet some reader, you get to perform. But better yet, if you are the kind of writer who is willing to reveal something of himself on the page, the payoff is you get to feel seen. Can you respond to that? I, I thought you, of all the people that I've known over the years, you're one of the most thoughtful writers I've ever come across. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I uh, relate to that, but uh, feel seen, I, I guess that's right. I, what, the way I think of it is... Um, TV gets into a lot of people's homes and obviously has an audience that's exponentially much larger than the one you can reach, even with a very successful novel. Movies, the same thing. Video games, the same thing. But there's something intimate about the connection between writer 
and reader that no other medium uh, can replicate. Um, you're really broadcasting from the little box in your head to the little box in somebody else's head. You get to be the voice in their ear. And when you write and you're lucky enough to get published, the money comes and goes. The reputation really comes and goes. It does for everybody. And sometimes you fall out of print and books fall out of print. But once in a while, you'll talk to somebody, um, and, and thanks to uh, the medium of email, you'll hear directly from a reader, and they'll really let you know that they heard the story and it landed for them. And that really makes all, all the work that you do, all the dead ends and the blind alleys and the rejections, that all fades away when you really feel you've made that connection. And, and that's the life of Kings. So what I could do to end every segment, Peter Blauner, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? What did I miss? No. Everything. <laughs> no. That's very interesting because it's basically I'm asking what mistakes did I make? And the last time I asked that, the writer turned around on himself and he said, are you asking me what I missed? So, no, it can go either way. But most cases, I realize when it's I leave here and I go home, I said, did I make a mistake that I asked the wrong question? So you can take anywhere you want. But I'm curious because I want to learn, too, about what how I do and is it. What I'm doing is it I'm on the right page, quote unquote, no pun intended. So what did I miss? What did I get wrong? I don't think you missed or got anything wrong. I think you, you got what the book was about, which uh, I really appreciate. And as I said, is is really uh, the, the, the main uh, point here and really connecting with one reader at a time. And, and the only thing that I'd add is that this is really a book about storytelling. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, there's the specifics of uh, a story that has Charlton and Heston and Yule Brenner in it. And, and there's some funny stuff, uh, I hope, along the way. It has some stuff about terrorism. It has some uh, stuff about uh, suspense. Uh, it has uh, a, a kind of uh, love story that I hope is surprising as well. But what I really started with at the very beginning of the book was the image of the old man standing on top of the mountain, trying to hold himself upright long enough to see the promised land and, and to give his people the news. And something similar actually happened to Cecil B. DeMille when he was filming the Ten Commandments at the moment that um, he was filming the ultimate scene in the movie uh, with 15,000 extras and 15,000 animals on top of the gates of Pear Ramses, 11 stories high. He had a near fatal heart attack, but somehow he finished the picture. So it was important for me to finally find the right way to tell the story, which was to put it in the words of an old man trying to stay alive long enough to tell a young man he cares about a cautionary tale than he needs to hear. Um, I just didn't think that I was going to turn up being this much older by the time I finally got to tell the story myself. 
Well, this is a podcast for storytellers. You are one of my favorite storytellers of all time. To have the chance to talk to you is always an honor. Peter Blauner is the author of Picture in the Sand. And once again, Peter, thanks again for having a chance to spend some time with you. Thank you, Larry. Always a pleasure. After the break, the author hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara Boner Bork, joins the conversation from Ireland. I'm Larry Davidson. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Joining us right now is Volner Gwark, has published 12 books, including eight poetry collections. She has taught creative writing at the University of Manchester, and she makes her home in the west of Ireland. Megan Marshall, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, said, quote, hereafter is a mixed media, multi-genre tour de frost. And Mona, nice to have you join the conversation. Larry Davidson here. Thanks, Larry. Nice to be here. So the book is described as a striking blend of poetry, fiction, and history. And this is one of the most unique books I have read. So thank you so much for challenging me, quite honestly. The title, Hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara, what we learn about Ellen, and by extension, yourself. Yeah. Well, um, Ellen is a real character in that uh, a woman called Ellen O'Hara lived. She was born in 1862. Um, it turns out that she was my great-grandmother. Um, and I know... A few particular facts about her. I know that she left the West of Ireland and went to New York and that she worked as a domestic servant initially, um, that she got married, that she had two children and that um, towards the end of her life, she ran a boarding house for other Irish immigrants in right. New York. Right. So that's, that's a kind of a um, mostly what I heard through my mother telling me about her grandmother. She had lived with her grandmother when she was young. My mother was born in New York. And then I, I thought when I was in New York, I was on a fellowship in the New York Public Library, and I thought, well, I'll see what I can find out in terms of um, the history, the, the record, the, the official version of, of, um, of this woman's life. And what I found out was really very little. Um, she didn't own property. Um, she was in a number of census records. There was a marriage certificate for her, birth certs for her kids, and a death certificate. But there's not a whole lot else. And I don't have anything that belongs to her. I've never seen a photograph of her. I've never held anything that I know for sure um, was ever held by her. So my connection with her, even though she's a blood relative, uh, um, what I know of her is something that's full of holes and absences and a sense of um, never being able to be recovered. So my job is then to try and tell a story that has loads of holes in it. And right. how do you do that? Right. And those are the kinds of questions I have to answer. So the immigrant experience in America fascinates me because we all come from someplace else. And I am a huge fan of a novelist and a journalist in America called Pete Hamill, whose dad came from Ireland. So that experience is deep in his bones. And when I sat down to interview him, he once said, everybody says America is a melting pot. And he says, no, 
It's a mulligan, stew, and an alloy. And he wrote this great book called Forever, and his character, Cormac O'Connor, in 1740, comes to America and is a magical spell. So long as he stays in Manhattan, he will live forever. And the one takeaway I remember in the book, and it, it touches upon immigrant experience, and, and maybe your relatives had the same experience. Cormac is now in Manhattan, and he sees pigs running down the street, and his first response is, my God, the streets are paved with gold and free food. And I, and I love that line. So take us through the Irish immigrant experience, because based on my research between, I believe, 1845 and 1855, 1. 1.5 million adults came to this country. Why did they leave Ireland? And when they came here, what did they experience? Okay, well, in the time period that you're talking about, the reason that they left Ireland was um, mostly to do with the with the Great Famine um, and and the years immediately after the Great Famine. So, um, you know, most of your listeners will know that there was a famine in Ireland, that the potato crop failed, and that um, there wasn't sufficient access to other kinds of food to allow people to 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 thrive to to live. So, one million people died of starvation, and one million people emigrated, and most of them emigrated to the United States. And uh, very often to the cities on the eastern seaboard. We know that Boston, um, New York, Philadelphia. Um, now, the period when my great grandmother left was a little later, but I, I think that you know you go through a, a, a traumatic experience like the Great Famine, you don't forget about it. And so, if you have a, another smaller famine, or if you have any kind of peril or any sense of threat, then you think, okay, well, we'll, we'll use the same solution that worked for us before. So we'll, we'll send our children to America where they'll be safer and where they'll be able to earn money like they wouldn't be able to do in Ireland. And this was especially true of young women who really had no access to um, proper employment in Ireland. But in America, they did. So they could work as mill girls or they could work as domestic servants. And if they worked as domestic servants, which is what my great-grandmother did, they earned less than mill, mill girls, but they didn't have to pay for accommodation or for um, uniforms or for uh, transport to work or for food. All of those were given. So what they earned, they could save. And what they saved, they could send back to Ireland. So that's what an awful lot of women did. Um, and I think one of the things that characterizes Irish immigration is that is the number of young single women who left Ireland and went to America. That was unusual because if you look at, at um, pictures of um, Castle Garden or later on of Ellis Island, you right, see family right. groups. But with with Irish immigrants, you see a lot of young, very young women on their own and with very little luggage. They were really poor. Um, so the, the chance to work as domestic servants was um, usually a safe environment for them to be in where they could earn um, some kind of money that they could save and send back to their families in Ireland. Hard work, really hard work. So let, let's put this in context. Correct me if I'm wrong. Your great-grandmother came in the 1880s. That was considered between 1877 and 1900, the Gilded Age. Here in this country, HBO did a series called The Gilded Age. And basically, they touch upon that because the servants, there's a hierarchy in, in these multi-million dollar homes, you know, in New York City. They, they, 
the people had unbelievable amount of money. But in the other parts of New York City, Manhattan, beyond, there were domestic workers. So it was really a story, and I think you understand the story, of the have and the have-nots. Can you follow up on what, what I'm throwing out to you, the fact that the Gilded Age, Gilded Age was really important. It gave these young women jobs, but the jobs they got as domestics, they started off scrubbing floors and cleaning out chamber pots. And if you were lucky, you got elevated and elevated, but your great-grandmother lived this. Yeah. Um, I mean, the typical life of a domestic servant at that time would have involved working 15 hours a day, six and a half days a week. Um, and you're right. It was a it was backbreaking physical work. They were um, emptying out, um, you know, uh, bed, um, um, you know, they were taking care of sanitary needs. They were scrubbing floors. They were um, cleaning. They were setting fires. They were waiting table. It was hard, hard physical labor. And they were uh, supposed to be on call at all times. Um, and one of the remarkable things about um, Irish immigrants, other immigrants too, but um, Irish immigrants is that that lasted for one generation. And there was this huge investment on the part of, of immigrants in the education of their kids. Right. So that typically the first generation were doing that back-breaking work at the beck and call of, of other richer people. The next generation, they weren't doing that. They were stenographers. They were uh, working on, they were trolley men. They were mechanics. They were in the army. They were school teachers. Um, they had some kind of... Um, a better foothold in American society. And it happened within one generation, which is kind of remarkable, really. Well, you know, the Jews, the same sense of the same thing down on Hester Street in, in New York City, Manhattan. They wanted the kids to have a better life and they started stretching education. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. The book is called Hereafter, Telling Life, Ellen O'Hara. So I, this is a quote I got from the book and I make the mistake sometimes because I just finished reading the book days ago. You probably wrote this book a long time ago, and I'm how much you want to remember exactly everything you wrote. But the quote that I have in my notes is, I conjure you out of a single fact, talking about great-grandmother. What was that single fact? The fact that she was born and that she had a name. And once you have a name, you can actually start doing some research. It's, it's kind of astonishing to me that if you have a year of birth, and a name that you are well on your way towards locating any records that actually exist. I kind of thought there would be loads of Eleanor Harris, and there are in the records, in the passenger lists and the, the U.S. census records and so on. But there aren't very many who were born in the same year as Ellen. And um, so with those two things, then you, 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 have, you really have something to go on. But as I, I said at the start, I didn't find out the kind of information that would allow me to write, um, you know, a factual account. So I had to come at it a different way. I call this breadcrumbs. And I think you've already touched upon that, but I don't, I, I want to follow up. My breadcrumbs are, and writers of fiction are really good about teasing things out. A little breadcrumb here, a little breadcrumb there. They kind of manipulate us to get the word they want us to go as a reader. The breadcrumbs I came across in your book Passenger manifestless, census, birth and death records. And this is very, very interesting because part of the book is all about what I call money, 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 making it, saving it, and sending it back to the home country, banking accounts and transfers. And I think you did find 
Ellen's baptized um, documents. I think she was baptized in May 6 of 1862, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. I'm so glad that you picked up on that money thing, Larry, because, um, you know, when, when we think of um, Irish immigration to the U.S., we tend to sentimentalize it. And we have all the ballads and we have all the movies and um, we have this sense of it being a, a hard but a, a somehow soft around the edges kind of a, a story of self-improvement. And especially in relation to women, we don't really like to think of these women as, um, you know, being people involved in hard graft who were earning money, who were making decisions about money when women in Ireland were not making any decisions about money. But these women had that possibility of actually you know, self-determining in terms of, of finance, to some extent at least. And uh, I, I thought that was a fascinating aspect of the story and one that really hadn't received enough focus. So when you're right in, in terms of those things that you mentioned as being breadcrumbs, the other thing that really helped me was all the research that has been done by historians right. about the lives of women like Ellen, not Ellen, obviously, but the lives of women like her. So domestic servants, wives, um, deserted wives, mothers, um, um, people who ran boarding houses, and so on and so forth, and family networks and employment networks and, you know, labor circumstances and so on. So um, what I did when I couldn't fill in Ellen's story for myself with, with any kind of discovered fact was I, I sort of leaned on historians who had researched the kind of life that she likely would have had. So that was another aspect of what I did. And then I thought, well, she ought to speak for herself a little bit as well. And so I made up a character right. of Ellen. And I imagined her sitting across my table from me and uh, just telling me and kind of laughing at me um, for all the things that I was getting wrong and mocking me a little bit for my interest in her life. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I did really hear her voice as a character, you know. Uh, it really sort of occupied me for a full year was that voice that was inside my head. Um, and I think... Only for that voice, I'm not sure that the book would have worked as a as a sort of uh, coherent, convincing account. So, so I'm going to share a story. This is one of the highlights of my interviewing career. I interviewed the son of John Steinbeck, who wrote Crepes of Wrath. And I said to Thomas Steinbeck, who's also a novelist, I never, ever heard your father's voice. I know the books. Once again, it's a book of migration, the have and the have-nots part of this, the history of this country. So do you have a book in front of you? A copy yes, of your book? So I do. If you don't mind, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, but you can pick and choose because I want to hear this book in your own words. And I rarely, rarely do this, but this is the time I want to do, do this if you don't mind. In the beginning of the book, and I'm, I'm going right to it now, so if anybody hears rustling, you write being here. Can you just read a little bit of that, if you don't mind? I can. Do you have the page? Oh, yeah, I got a page. Page one, yeah. Yeah, page okay. one. Okay, so. My great-grandmother stops by today to check in on me. She makes tea from leaves and bids me drain it quickly, for once in my life, not to speak. Looking into the cup, she tells me to buy a bicycle, grow my hair and wear it up, that a man I don't know thinks ardently of me that number six will be significant and that I should have my eyes checked. It seems she gets by by fortune telling on the other side. No version of the future, she says, 
is wasted on the dead. It's true my eyes have been feeling the strain of hour on hour, screen leaning for verifiable facts. I started with no more than her name. Now I have a list of questions to put to her that she doesn't seem, to be frank, inclined to answer. She tilts the leaves, examining, but gives no more commands, then gones herself into the thin air. The small white cup remains. Thank you. That is beautiful. I, I appreciate that because I know we didn't set this up. I just asked you at the last moment. There's another part of the book that I really had to think about. Uh, I'm a parent. I think you're a parent. Uh, we know people who are parents and grandparents and beyond. And you're, Ellen has had multiple marriages and she's had two children. At one point in the book, she sends her children back to Ireland. And I wonder, after a passage of time, do you stop being a parent and do your children stop thinking of you as their mother because a fair amount of time passes before the two children come back to Ellen in America? Yeah. One thing I got to say, because um, I, I think that she'd kill me if I didn't say it was one marriage not multiple one marriage okay. <laughs> but you're right you're right about everything else so um i think what happened is that her husband um took off basically and that was not uncommon amongst irish immigrants where the men um tended to find work on railroads and roads and so on that took them out of town um and the women stayed home and raising the children and and, um, and and making money whatever way they could. So I think that's what happened in her case. So then she finds herself in New York, in Manhattan, with two kids and uh, nobody, no support network, no help, no nobody to say, well, here's, here's how you do this. So I think she calculated that the best option for her was to to bring those kids back home to right. um to south county sligo in ireland and to leave them with her parents and then she came back on her own and i know that because of the passenger manifest um and i found her there and that was a big surprise to me i did not know that that had happened um and they're there for 13 years and then they come back to manhattan and in many ways i think the the coming back to manhattan must have been really weird for all three of them now she would have always been expecting it and working towards that and probably trying to get the money and right. trying to get her little business set up so she'd have an extra bedroom and so on. But to them, it must have been really extraordinary to be taken because they wouldn't have remembered going back to Sligo from Manhattan. But now Sligo was all they knew and their grandparents were their family and, and the aunts and uncles who were still left there. And from this, they were plucked to go and sail across the Atlantic and to meet their their mother. Um and, you know, no phone calls, obviously, and uh, no photographs. Um, all that they would have known of her was letters that she would have sent. Yeah. So she must have been really a very disembodied, quite distant person to them. And I think it, it must all have been really quite traumatic. The whole story must have been a difficult, traumatic story of, of wounds and, and, and loss and, and uh, challenge. And I don't think trauma is too big a word, in fact. So I, I'm going to laugh once again, if you don't mind, because it's a scene in the book that I really related to. 
Now the kids are back living with their mom. I think maybe they're 12 and 13, you know, 13, 14, whatever. And they go to Lord and Taylor to get her a scarf. I'm laughing because my mother's most favorite department store was Lord and Taylor. Lord and Taylor in New York City was the store for high quality clothes. So she takes me there. I think I'm in what we call the junior high. Now they call it middle school. And she buys me a pair of red pants because my mother had a fashion sense. But I'm a, I'm, I'm your best in teenage, what, teenager, whatever. I'm not going to wear these pants. Thank you, uh, these red pants. Thank you, mom. Now everybody wears wild colors. But I read this little passage, and you brought me back to my mom, buying me a pair of pants in Lord and Taylor. But these two kids buying, the, thinking about what to get their mom, was a great little vignette. Well, thank you. You know, I had to I had to use my imagination entirely for that one. There was no historian who could help me and there were no family records. But I just thought at some point they have to kind of say to themselves, well, she's our mother and we have to treat her like our mother. Um, and whatever way that they otherwise viewed her, they probably thought that she was quite strange to them in some ways. Um, but whatever other stuff was going on, come, come on her birthday, they had to buy her a present. So I thought, okay, let's let's fancy this up a little bit, and uh, and let, let's see how this would have worked. Um, and I spent a long time writing that, just trying to trying to get it right, just trying to get it right for um, a fourteen year old and a thirteen year old, and just to the circumstances of the department store and everything. Um, so I'm really glad. Thank you for saying that that it, it worked as a vignette. That's great to hear. So I also took this out of the book. Facts. So you're addressing what we call facts, but I think you said, but facts are tombstones, dead-end truths. The reason why I referenced this, because towards the end of the book, almost what I call the Rosetta Stone, you find Ellen's tombstone. Is that true? Yep, that is absolutely true. I went out to Queens and it took me a long, I honestly was on the verge of giving up because it wasn't where I thought it should be. I had I had um, in advance worked out or found out the, um, the the number of the grave, but I couldn't find the area where it should be. And honestly, I was about to leave after about an hour and a half, and it was warm that day. And I I thought, okay, I, I think I've got this all wrong. I need to go back and and do more research. And then I just I looked up, and there was the freeway, the expressway, and I just thought, well. Okay, let's let's. Uh, that's an area I haven't really rummaged around, and I found this little corner right underneath, in the shadow of the expressway, and I found it. I found her, I found her um, her grave, and um, it was it was kind of extraordinary. Uh, it was one of those things where you just think, right? I I almost turned back, and something just I don't want to say what it is. I don't know what it is, but just happenstance or good luck or whatever, just. Um, just brought me to to the thing that I, I most wanted to see, and it was it was a kind of a gorgeous moment. And uh, um, we're we're launching the book in in um, in in the Gluckman Ireland House next week, and uh, my sister and brother are coming over from from Ireland for it, and they want to go out to Ellen's grave as well, and they want to do what I did and make that little I guess you could call it a, a pilgrimage or an homage or whatever, but they, they're determined to do that. So there's two things I want to do before we let you go. One is there's a pocket watch in this story. If we're lucky, 
our loved ones leave us something behind. And the thing they leave us behind is what I cherish most, which they can never take from us. And that's our memories. We may not be rich, we may be poor, whatever, but we always are going to have our memories. But what about the pocket watch in this story? Well, because I don't, I don't have memories really. Um, it's a slightly abstracted story. I have a, I have a blood connection, and that counts for something. Um, but the pocket watch um, was my mother's, and she gave it to me. And it is, uh, my mother was born in 1924 in Manhattan, and this watch is of that period because I've done a bit of research on that. Right. And so I got to thinking, right, who could have given her this watch? And I thought, well, I don't think her parents did because they didn't have money for things like that. I don't think her father's parents sent it over from Ireland because they definitely didn't have money for that. I think the only person who could have given it to her was very likely her grandmother because this was her first grandchild. So it's it's not implausible. I don't have actual proof, but it's not implausible that this watch was given by Ellen to my mother when she was born. And I have the watch. It doesn't work, but that's okay. Um, I think there's a kind of a, a poetic um, rightness to the fact that it doesn't work, that it's stopped. Um, and I will be wearing it at the book launch next week. So what I'd like to do, I posed this observation to Peter in the first segment, and I want to give it to you too, because I said to Peter, I'm very honest, I'm not capable of original thought, but I am capable of stealing things other people have original thoughts and observations. This is how it goes. You work in solitude, and yes, that can be lonely. And if you're lucky to go on a book tour meet some reader, you get to perform. But better yet, if you are a kind of a writer who is willing to reveal something, in your case, herself, on the page, the payoff is that you get to feel seen. What do you feel about that, that rendering, that observation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's right, Laurie. And uh, I, I put a version of myself into the story because I'm, I'm kind of watching myself trying to uncover the story. So I, I am seeing myself in it. And I think that it's important that I, I don't pretend that I'm not there as a word that the story is being told almost through this invisible researcher. So the researcher is there as a character in the story um, because the, 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 um, the gains of research and the, the, the dead ends, if you like, or the loose ends of research are all part of the story as well. So yes, I mean, the, it's, it is also, and to come right back to the very first question about what, what do we learn about Ellen and what do we learn about me, um, you, you learn, um, I can't deny it, there is, there is an element of me in the book. There's an element of, of me as a presence, and I do say things about my own life in it as well in comparison with her and, and, and how lucky I am and, and, and how, um, how easy my life is in so many ways in comparison with hers. Um, and how unrecognizable it would be to her. Um, so yeah, I, I am there and it's a version of me. It's not, it's not exactly me, but I think that's probably true of anybody who writes a nonfiction book um, is that it, it doesn't map exactly onto your own life and personality, but it is, I'm there, I'm there. And if somebody, if somebody sees me, if somebody sees, which I think is probably more likely, sees an aspect of their own story in this book, then I'm very happy because I think it is, it's not just my story. It's the story of anybody who had a woman like Ellen who came from Ireland, who worked in America, who, who kind of dragged themselves up and who educated their children and who invested in their children's future in the way that Ellen did. And I think just even from the reaction I've had already to the book, 
that people do see their own family stories in this book. Well, I am thrilled that my listeners are going to hear you and go out and get the book. The book is called Hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara. And I also want to thank Peter for his book, Picture in the Sand. Bona, thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. And when are you coming to America? I'm coming next week, actually. The the launch is in the Lux Van Ireland House on Thursday of next week at 7 o'clock. So I will be there. um, And I'm very excited about it. Looking forward to it. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. Till next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she brought-